Let's pray for God's blessing on our time and his word, please. Father, thank you for giving us your law, and we pray that it would be a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet, and we pray that we would receive the truth of what your word has said to us about the eighth commandment, that you shall not steal, and that we would receive his truths with faith and love, lay them up on our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please turn to Exodus 20, verse 15. Exodus 20, verse 15. Exodus 20, verse 15 is our first scripture reading, and there's one other one I want to read to us as well. Exodus 20, verse 15. This is God's word. You shall not steal. May God bless the reading of his word, and then... Deuteronomy chapter 8, turn over there just a little bit to the end of the Pentateuch there. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 19. Deuteronomy 8, 11 through 19. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11. Deuteronomy 8, verse 11, this is God's word. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness, he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. May God bless the reading of his holy word. You shall not steal. Barna polls indicate that 91% of evangelicals believe they keep this commandment. 91% think they never steal. If that statistic holds true in this room, my hope is that 0% of you will think that before we're done. In a profoundly disturbing book called The Day America Told the Truth, some of the people who responded to the surveys on American attitudes mentioned the following things as commonplace. Quote, our night manager steals from the company nightly. We call him the burglar. Everybody steals supplies out of the warehouse. Coworkers take money out of the cash register. My boss has taken money and given merchandise away. Bosses often ask someone to say a job's done when we haven't even started. Cheating people out of pay is commonplace. Leaving work without finishing the job happens every day. Shameful misuse of company materials and company time is commonplace. Cover up for jobs undone is commonplace. 
falsification of a lot of sign-in sheets which get billed happens every day. Many larger companies throughout the world have actually created a position, the vice president for loss prevention, for people that steal, with tests of employees for theft growing by 20% every year in America. What many people fail to realize is that one misspent hour at work, something we forget to return to the office, using company property for personal use, overpricing something that we're selling, underpricing someone, underpricing something to someone and thus robbing ourselves is also a problem, taking longer than the allotted time for lunch, taking something that's not yours when no one is looking, are all violations of this commandment that put us under the curse of God. The fact is, nobody has ever kept God's commandments to the satisfaction of God's holiness, even for an hour. No one's ever kept the Eighth Commandment. Indeed, in that sense, there is none righteous, no, not one, Paul said in Romans 3. Christians who are new creatures in Christ, no longer enslaved to sin, yes, we will make the new beginnings of obedience to the commandment, you shall not steal. Yes, we will begin to keep that commandment, but we will never do it to the full satisfaction of God's holiness. Never perfectly. It's remarkable to to consider what all is entailed in this great commandment and all that it implies. And so I've given you a five-point outline there in your bulletin. If you want to follow along that way, I think it it logically progresses there. Number one, the right to private property. Two, our role as stewards. Three, theft. Four, greed and the love of money. And then five, work ethic and integrity with our stewardship. So point number one, the right to private property. The Eighth Commandment assumes that we as human beings can actually own stuff. It's vital that we understand uh, where, this, where this right to, come, to own things comes from. Where does the right to own property come from? First of all, it does not come from the goodwill of our fellow man. And it also does not come from the state. The right to own things is rooted in creation. It's rooted in creation. God said in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. God gives the bounty of his creation to his creatures. That's why we can own things. Okay, so your right to own stuff has nothing to do with the U.S. government. Amen? Right? And they actually can steal from us and do steal from us a lot. One commentator said this. It was that creation that God the creator committed the world and its resources to humanity. He gave it to us. It was because the man and the woman were made in the image of God that they were commanded to subdue the created order and to exercise dominion over the whole of it. So when we say... Okay, people have the right to private property. Here's what we're not saying. We're not saying that people have a divinely given right to have a house. We're not saying people have a right to have a car or a boat or food or health care or a bed or dishes or toothbrushes or anything at all. We don't have the right to have those things, but we do have the right to acquire them. And once we acquire them, we own them. 
Okay, so don't listen to this and say, see, I have a divinely given right to a house. So someone needs to give me a house. No, they don't. I have a divinely given right to health care. No, you don't. We have the right to acquire those things through work, through purchasing, but we don't have an inherent right to all that stuff. Once those things are acquired through hard work, through purchases, or someone giving us gifts, uh, personal gifts, those things become our private property. And for someone else to take them from us violates the Eighth Commandment. Or if we take what belongs to someone else, that violates the Eighth Commandment. Now, there are numerous applications of the Eighth Commandment throughout the Old Testament. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament about this. But one of the longest and most uh, strong, helpful ways to see the the spirit of the commandment is found in Exodus 22. And I I want you to notice here as I read this passage to you, the penalties for stealing are pretty stiff. Okay, listen, Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox. And four sheep for a sheep. Not only to restore the one you stole, you got to give four more. That's a huge markup, isn't it? You see how serious God is about that? What belongs to someone is theirs. We can't take it. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no, no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. You catch that? Life is more important than property. So if you see in your front yard someone hot-wiring your car and driving off with it, you're not allowed to shoot them and kill them. Okay? Their life is more important than your property. Now, if someone breaks in your house at night, you're allowed to kill them. Okay? You don't try to have a conversation with them. Now, what are you here to do this evening? Okay? You, you have the right to, their life is forfeit. But if it's broad daylight, we're not allowed, it says there in the text of, of God's law that you shall be guilty for bloodshed if you see it in broad daylight. If the theft is, is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it's an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the be- from the beast of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. And it goes on from there. It's very serious. What belongs to us is our property. Other people are not allowed to take it or waste it or abuse it. Okay. So notice here in God's justice when it comes to stealing, when someone steals what is rightly our property, you don't merely have to restore what you unlawfully stole. You have to give a whole bunch more of the same thing to the person. And as was pointed out, life is also more important than property. The key point here is this. The law of God teaches us that we can own things. The commandment assumes that. Exodus 22 says, if a man steals an ox or a sheep, he's supposed to give five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And the assumption there is that the oxen and the sheep are really someone else's. They really do belong to that person. They are that person's property. And that means you can't take those things without incurring God's judgment. Prohibition against stealing assumes human beings can have private property and possessions. Okay, the position from the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, also assumes that. We're asking God to give us things that will become our property. We're asking that God would give us the material possessions that we need in order to live our lives and to glorify his name. Our possessions in this world, just like our lives, are gifts of God. All of our gifts and our talents, our work, our money, our houses, our cars, our clothes, our watches, our shoes, our food... Those are things God gives to us. When we sit down to eat food, 
If you're a Christian, what do you instinctively do? You thank God for the food, don't you? Because you know, ultimately, it came from him. Even though we worked hard at our job and we we saved money and we purchased that food, we know that in the ultimate sense, it came from God. And thus, we bow our heads and we thank God when we eat. When we buy a house or, or a car, we thank God for that house. We thank God for that car. When we buy a new pair of shoes, we thank God for those shoes. God is the ultimate source of our wealth. He's the ultimate source of all of our possessions. So, dear congregation, I want to remind myself and all of us of a very important point of application in this matter. God gives people gifts. He gives them self-discipline. He gives them a good work ethic. He gives people creativity, intelligence, ingenuity, the ability to come up with good ideas and determination to pursue worthwhile callings and vocations. He gives us those things to build our estates and to build wealth. The people of Israel... We're great at it. They built great wealth and great estates when they entered the promised land. It was a wonderful, abundant land. God told them, it's flowing with milk and honey, and the the land is very fruitful, and it's going to be a great place. But building that wealth and building those estates made them cocky and prideful and arrogant. Listen carefully to God's word. I just read that passage. Listen to it again, Deuteronomy 8. Beware that you don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then what does he do in the passage after that? He says, Remember me? You're in the promised land because of me. I'm the one that liberated you from slavery. I brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. I'm the one who led you through the great and terrible wilderness when the the fiery serpents and the scorpions and the thirsty land where there was no water. Remember, I gave you water out of a rock. I'm the one who fed you with manna, miraculously. Don't forget about me. I'm the one who gives you all these things. Verse 17 there, then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And verse 18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. You see the problem there? God gives us all these gifts and all this stuff. And I want you to to build your wealth and build your estate. And it makes people cocky and arrogant. Look how great I am. Look at all my stuff. He says, don't forget, I'm the one that redeemed you. I'm the one that made you. I'm the one that gave you all this stuff. I'm the one that gives you the power to do these things, to build wealth. All of us need to acknowledge that there's something intoxicating and deadly about wealth. You know, many of our Puritan forefathers wrote about the burden of wealth. They looked at wealth as a a bit of a cross. It's a burden in that it so easily leads to pride. It so easily leads to greed or to being a miser. The Puritan said it can also be a source of false friendships. It can cause others to resent and be jealous of you. The more we have, the more the Lord expects from us. The more gifted you are as a person, the more of a return on his investment God expects to get from you. The one with two talents gained two more for his master. The one with five gained five more from his master. What if the one with five had gained two more? 
who wouldn't have heard, good, well done, good and faithful servant? If God has showered you with gifts and with blessings, with possessions, with abilities, that's not a cause for pride. It's a cause for fear. If you're one of those people that you're just good at everything and you're good at stuff and you have talents and abilities, you need to be humble before God. He's expecting to get a lot back from you because you had nothing to do with any of those gifts or talents. They all came from God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? But is this not exactly what Deuteronomy 8, 11 and 19 is teaching us? The things we have given to us by God are very often the things that make us prideful. What God said to Israel, he says to us, he warned them, he's warning us. Remember, who, who was it that made you again? Who was it that redeemed you and bought you? Who was it that led you and carried you through life thus far? And who gave you the power and the ability to gain wealth? Answer, it wasn't you. Deuteronomy 8, 14. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, why do you boast, 4, 7, as, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Dear ones, pride is irrational. Arrogance is irrational. It's like the paintings of the master artist boasting about how beautiful they are. It's like the pen boasting how great a novel is when the author just used the pen to write it. Why do we do that? Why are our minds and hearts and heads so easily inflated with pride? What a strange thing. What a testimony to our sin that is. Deuteronomy 8.18 there, you shall remember the Lord your God. It is he who gives you power to get wealth. But he told Israel, when you guys do all this stuff and you build your houses and you dwell in them and your silver and gold increase and your cattle increase and everything increases, you're going to forget all about me. And he's warning them, don't do it. Israel struggled with the seductive power of wealth. Very often we will as well. That brings us to the second key principle on the subject of you shall not steal stewardship. Look at point number two. Our role as stewards. Theft is real. Stealing is real. Robbery is real. It's real stuff. It's real sin. It's real crime. But listen, ultimate ownership is God's alone. What we own what we do only in the sight of our fellow men. In God's eyes, we don't own any of it. I own what I own in front of you. When it comes to God, he gives and takes whatever he wants. God cannot steal from us. God gives and takes away as he sees fit. If losing a person or a thing causes us to turn on God, then we didn't love him in the first place. When it comes to what my neighbor has and what he owns, I'm not allowed to take it. But God is. What we have and all that we have is given to us by God, including our lives and our bodies. If our most cherished earthly joys are taken from us by God, that is not God stealing from us. Remember what Job said to his wife? Job 1.21, he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrongdoing. Why did you take this from me? How dare... It was God gives, God takes away. Our ownership, listen, our ownership is never ultimate. It's never ultimate. And this includes not just our money and our possessions, but our health. Our bodies, our marriages, our children, our friends, our churches. God may give, 
God may take away. Our duty is to love and worship and praise His name. That duty is always the same, no matter what He gives or what He takes from us. Remember what Satan, why he wanted at Job? He was convinced. He told God, yeah, he loves you because you've surrounded him with a hedge of protection. Let, let me take all the stuff you've given him. Let me take all of his money and his health and his possessions. He'll curse you to your face. And then we find, of course, that Job loved God all along. So, dear ones, we need to know, you know, a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of possessions, a lot of gifts, they will come into our possession and pass through our fingers. And then we die. But all of us stays here. We're born naked. In a sense, we die naked. Can't take any of it with you. You won't see a, a U-Haul behind a hearse. God gives us some things. They're ours in this world as stewards for a little while, and, and we die. God put Adam into this glorious creation, this glorious world, to be a steward, not a tyrant. Genesis 2.15 says, The man was put by God in the Garden of Eden to work and take care of it. Adam did not create the world. He didn't create the Garden of Eden either. We didn't create the world or create the Garden of Eden ourselves. We simply take care of it. We're not to destroy it or ruin it for our own purposes. You know, our Puritan forefathers and our Christian forefathers, they they wrote a lot about this issue of our our being stewards of the world, of the the created order, and and of all of our possessions and our time and and our bodies. Presbyterian minister John uh, Flavel said in 1669, he wrote this about a tired horse, quote, what hath this creature done that he should be thus beaten, sounded and tired out, wounded and tired out by me? He's my fellow creature, end quote. If you get a dog or a cat as a pet, it's wrong to abandon that animal or to mistreat it. If you get a pet, you need to regard the life and the comfort of that pet and not abuse that pet or allow it to be abused. Proverbs 12.10 says the righteous man regards the life of his animal. You get a pet, you're committed to it. It's part of God's creation. Man selectively bred those kinds of animals so they would like us. How terrible is it to abuse them? Another thing our Christian forefathers were into was, was gardening. When monasticism was rejected and, and the whole monastic way of life was rejected, you know what replaced it by and large was gardening. One author said this, quote, In post-Reformation literature, the enclosed garden was a symbol of repose and harmony. Its flowers and trees were emblems of spiritual truths. Its walks and arbors a sort of outdoor cloister. The garden thus became the accepted place for spiritual reflection in life, no less than in literature, end quote. You know, my dad loved to garden. And he was known in the neighborhood as Mr. Tomato. The kids literally called him Mr. Tomato. He took special care of his tomato patch. He had a compost pile with eggshells, banana peels, apple cores, and all the other leftovers from our meals in the house. They're not allowed to throw any of that stuff away. It all went into the compost pile. He declared nuclear war on deer, rabbits, anything else that ever tried to get into that garden. But you know, when harvest time would come, the man would stand out there in the sun eating the biggest Bushmaster tomatoes I've ever seen. And he'd stand there eating them like they were apples and there'd be tomato juice running down his forearms and all over his face. And he'd fill brown paper bags with tomatoes and go up and down the street and give them to all the neighbors. And from the time I was a little kid, he desperately wanted me to like raw tomatoes. But that just was not happening. And I was informed again and again I couldn't get up until I ate a large slice of one of those 
tomatoes and I would gag and, and complain. And one time I thought if I took a fork and poked enough holes in it, it would just disappear. But it just turned it into sludge that I had to eat. But you know what? I look back on that at that weird sense, that profound sense of satisfaction that my dad took in going out there and seeing the fruit of his labor and eating one of those giant tomatoes and just eating it like an apple and praising God for it in front of me and things like that. I just think that that's kind of what the, the uh, Reformed forefathers were talking about. 17th century herbal doctor and Christian Roger Crabbe said this, quote, when I was in my, early, uh, my earthly garden a digging with my spade, I saw into the paradise of God from whence my father Adam was cast forth. John Calvin wrote this, the custody of the garden was given in charge to Adam to show that we possess the things which God has committed to our hands on the condition that being content with a frugal and moderate use of them, we should take care of what shall remain. Let him who possesses a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by negligence, but let him endeavor to hand it down to posterity as he received it or even better cultivated. Let him so feed on its fruits that it neither dissipates that he neither dissipates it by luxury nor permits it to be marred or ruined by neglect. Moreover, that this economy and this diligence with respect to those good things which God has given us to enjoy may flourish among us. Let everyone regard himself as the steward of God in all things which he possesses. That's great advice, isn't it? God owns the land. And everything that grows or lives or works upon it. We are merely custodians of the things that are ours. We are not dictators or tyrants. We ought to care for this world and cause it to bring forth abundance. Not not destroy it or ruin it. We're, We're stewards. Now let's look at the ways that we violate the eighth commandment. The first one there, number three, theft. Shoplifting is a sin. Taking your siblings clothes and things is a sin. Playing with their toys without permission is a sin. I don't have anybody specifically in mind at all saying that. Neglecting a car and not getting the oil changed or having the maintenance done on it so that it blows up and gets destroyed, that's stealing from yourself. In his document, my father gave me long ago lessons I've learned in 58 years on planet Earth. I was reading back through it after his funeral. He wrote... Use all the toothpaste you can out of each tube. You bought it. Why not use it all? Waste is stealing from ourselves. We can steal by failing to follow through with something we gave our word that we would do. One theologian told this story, quote, I had agreed to clear a neighbor's property of accumulated rubbish and stack wood that had been strewn from one corner of the lot to the other. In the course of the first day, this neighbor watched my every move and looked for every opportunity to criticize my work. Exasperated, I walked off the job on the second day. If you don't like what I'm doing, Mr. Hansen, you can find someone else to do it, I said directly. Returning home, expecting to find some sympathy for my protest, I instead found myself being commanded to go back, apologize to Mr. Hansen, and finish the job. My father said, you don't have the right to walk off a job like that, son. You made a deal and he's already paid you for your work. To which this guy said, I'll give him his money back. But my father was set on this, a deal's a deal thing. Son, it doesn't matter how difficult he is. Listen, you're responsible for your work, not his attitude. Reluctantly, I returned to our neighbor's lot 
By now, something akin to an escaped convict returning to a prison camp voluntarily. <laughs> Mr. Hansen was as difficult as ever, but I finished the job and was rewarded with a sense of having done the right thing. If we're lazy at work, you're stealing from your employer. If we fail to repay loans or run up credit card debt with no intention of paying it back, we're stealing. Debt is not inherently sinful, but it should be minimal if possible. And plans should be made to stay out of debt or to get out of it eventually. If we overcharge people for goods and services, that is theft. And also, if we undercharge people because we're wanting to be so cautious, we're stealing from ourselves. A just or righteous price for something, listen, is not just whatever the market allows. There certainly is the true market value for goods and services, but we also need to remember that we should not take advantage of people and impoverish them just because it's legal. What may be legal may not be just or right. So remember that. Excessive interest is also stealing. Charging excessive interest is stealing. Exodus 22, 25, and 26, we learn money loaned was simply to be repaid without interest. You're supposed to primarily get that not from banks, but from family, from friends. To give money, you pay back the money. You know, John Calvin in Geneva forbade the interest on loans to the poor and needy. We weren't allowed to charge them interest at all. But he did allow for minimal interest on loans for other people. In Geneva, Calvin himself was actually asked to establish the interest rate because it was considered to be a moral theological issue. Isn't that amazing? I'll let the pastor figure it out. He, it's a moral issue. <laughs> Would you wish the Fed would do that today? <laughs> Loaning institutions opened up in the region there to help people start businesses who would never be able to get enough money initially to do so. But the principle that governed those banks was always the same, minimal interest. Minimal interest. Excessive interest charging is sinful because it often impoverishes people and it makes them stuck in that poverty. It's sin to do that to people. And that brings us to point number four, greed and the love of money. First Timothy 6.10, most people know this passage and rightly so. Money's not the root of all evil, but the love of money is. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. People that once were doing real well in the rock with, with Christ that once they got captured by the love of money, they strayed from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Remember what King Solomon prayed there in Proverbs 30? Give me neither poverty nor riches. I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be filthy rich either. Just remember, whatever we do have, we're blessed to be a blessing to others. Generosity and sacrificial giving have always characterized the people of God from the beginning it has. And while the unbelieving world might do so, we do not hold our wealth too close to our chests because all we are are stewards. Ultimate ownership is God's. He gives us all this stuff. He wants to see what we're going to do with it. What are you going to do with all the gifts I gave you? We own our things, but not ultimately. All that is in our possession was given to us by God. All of it. And all of it stays here when we die. We should be creative we should be righteous. We should be biblical when we think of what to invest our money in and what to give to. Ecclesiastes 11 verses 1 and 2. Listen, cast your bread upon many waters. I take that to mean invest in lots of different things. 
And thus the lots of different things related to the kingdom of God. Cast your bread upon many waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. We ought to save up for future generations, for our children, our children's children. But we don't save just so they can save and then our children's children can save. We are to put our money into service. We are to invest it. We are to work with it. Into the, put it into the service of God. We also, listen, we're also supposed to enjoy God's good, good gifts. Enjoy stuff. Did you know the Puritans, unbeknownst to many who study them today, they were really into fashion. They were into fashion. They like colorful clothes. I mean, can you imagine John Owen wearing colorful clothes? and like, check it out. This is a nice looking suit. They did. They cared about things like that. They were into fashion. They were into uh, the latest gadgets and things, inventions. Um, Jonathan Edwards loved chocolate. Not that they had very good dental care back then. <laughs> they were into stuff like that. They loved cigars, fine cigars. You know, Spurgeon smoked cigars. And when the Methodist circuit riders came to town, he'd smoke cigars in front of them on purpose. <laughs> and, and told them, why? Don't, you don't need to worry, I don't ever smoke to excess. And the Methodist circuit writer said, well, what is smoking to excess? And Spurgeon said, smoking two cigars at the same time. <laughs> God gives us wealth to enjoy. You know, we talk about weddings. You know, weddings, man, weddings are so expensive. But imagine a wedding that lasts for a week. Remember the wedding in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana? Jesus miraculously made an extra 150 gallons of wine. Okay, that was after they ran out of what they already had. That's a nice little supplement for your party, isn't it? 150 gallons more? I mean, those celebrations lasted for a week. Very large amounts of Israel's national budget was spent on feasts and festivals and, and parties. They enjoyed their wealth. They enjoyed God's gifts. God gives us wealth to share, to invest, to enjoy, to spend, and to give. You know, some Christians struggle with guilt about buying almost anything. They're, they're afraid, well, I, I should buy something less expensive. I shouldn't buy anything too nice because then I'm not being a good steward. It's not God's will for us to live in fear of things like that. God knows our hearts and we have to know our own hearts. And we have to watch our hearts closely to be sure that things and possessions are not the source of our satisfaction or our joy in life. Paul wrote some stirring words about the church in Macedonia. Remember the church in Macedonia? They, we don't know much about them except what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, but listen to this. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. Moreover, he's telling the church in Corinth, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, and that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing to give, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. He's saying those people were very poor. And yet they gave an incredibly generous gift. So much that we were like, no, 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 we can't take this. And they urged them to take it. That's what Christians have always done. Given sacrificially to one another to help each other out. You know the Mormon religion? You all talk to elder, elder so-and-so that can't shave yet? Why do they feel the biggest missionary force on earth? They tithe. 
They all tithe. You can't join that religion without turning in your W-2. Did you know that? You have to turn in your W-2 to them to make sure you're giving 10% of your money. Most Christians don't tithe. Malachi 3.8, will a man rob God? Yet you've robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And the scripture says, in tithes and offerings. I remember hearing the head of an apologetics ministry speak very fondly of a very small church that faithfully sent them a really small check every month for years and years. More than that little church could afford to help support his apologetics ministry and his evangelistic outreach to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Roman Catholics. The Christian people throughout all of history have always been known to be generous and giving when it comes to their time, to their money, and to themselves. You know, we can steal from our own families, siblings, and church if we rob them of ourselves. Not only are you a steward of your money and your possessions, you're a steward of your life, of your heart, of your words, your attention. You know, we read 2nd and 3rd John this past Wednesday night at our evening Bible study, Wednesday night Bible study, and both of those letters end with a very touching phrase, 2nd and 3rd John. John says, I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. That's the last part of 2nd John, the last part of 3rd John. I hope to see you shortly and speak face to face. He says, I got a lot of other things to tell you. I'm not going to write you. I want to see you face to face. Face to face. So Christians, don't rob your Christian family of your face. Even in the corporate world, people used to speak about a little FaceTime. We need FaceTime. Why do we need FaceTime? So we have a better relationship than instant messaging each other. Electronic communication, yes, it has its place, but there's no substitute for seeing people. As John said, face to face. Don't steal your face from people. Greed and the love of money are not good, but greed with our time is also not good. Greed with ourselves is not good. The love of money is the root of every kind of evil. People have killed for money, murdered for money. Wars have started because nations are jealous of what their next door neighbors have, and so they attack and invade Being discontent is the cause of untold evils in the world. King Solomon, one of the wealthiest men who ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. Congregation, it's not saying wealth is sinful. It's not saying abundance is sinful. What it's saying is, watch your heart carefully. Things Money, stuff, prosperity can so easily blind us to the, their idolatrous tendencies in us. There's nothing wrong with working hard. There is nothing wrong with working hard so you can drive a nicer and more reliable vehicle. There's everything good about doing that. But watch out. Temptation to greed and the temptation to never be satisfied with anything, that's there in every one of us. That's there in every heart in this room, my, myself included. A person who loves silver, who loves money, will not be satisfied with it. It'll never be enough. John D. Rockefeller, probably the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest human beings in history, he was asked by someone once, how much money is enough? You know what he said? A little more. We're stewards of our things, not the slaves of them. We're stewards of money. We're not money's worshipers. It comes to us by the hand of God. It passes through our fingers when we spend it. 
So I ask, what will be the legacy that we leave behind? We all leave something behind. What will be the legacy of all the gifts God piled into my lap? What did I do with them? What did I do with those gifts? Fifthly, finally this morning, work ethic and integrity with our stewardships. Protestant Reformation did wonderful work in recovering the biblical fact that all callings and jobs and vocations that serve our neighbor are good and they're God-glorifying. There is no secular, sacred distinction with regard to work. The day Martin Luther lived in held very tightly to that secular, sacred distinction. It was, there were people that were serious about God and they all lived in monasteries and held positions of authority in the church. And then all the other second-class people had secular jobs that paid for the serious people to do their spiritual stuff. People so often want to know, you know, what, what is God's will for my life? In terms of what kind of job should I do or what should I be aiming at? What should I be building towards in my life to do with my life? God will make that clear to you by the gifts, talents, and interests that he gives to you. Here's how you know what you're supposed to do with your life. Ready? This is really high tech. What do you like? What are you good at? What do you like and what are you good at? God gave you those desires, those abilities for a reason. Use them. Martin Luther, very famous little anecdote. A shoemaker was a member of his church. Pastor Luther, I, I want to know how to serve God. How can I love and serve God the best? And Luther said, what kind of work do you do? And he said, I made shoes. And Luther said, then make the best pair of shoes you can and sell them at a fair price. There you go. There's how you glorify Christ in your life. Brothers and sisters, if you do your job well and you work hard at your obligations, you can sleep well at night knowing you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And some people might say in response to this, look, I have a job that I'm stuck in and I hate it. How can I glorify God? And my answer to you is, read Genesis 37 to the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph. Do you think when Joseph was a young man, he dreamed about being an astronaut, a baseball player, or a pharaonic slave? When he sat around dreaming about his life, doing the mundane and dirty, gross chores as a slave in Egypt was not on his list of ambitions. It was not something he dreamed about. When Nehemiah was a kid and had his own dreams, I doubt that he wanted to grow up and be a cupbearer to a foreign king to be the one that gets poisoned and killed instead of the king. And yet these men took those vacations very seriously and worked hard at them. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Joseph, Nehemiah, Daniel, they had jobs I'm sure they didn't like. What did all three of them end up doing? Standing in front of kings. And became some of the most powerful men in their, in their countries. A Christian can thrive and shine in any job that they do. We're all required by God to work. If we're able-bodied, we're supposed to work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, if someone had or has a problem with stealing, for some people, that's a real problem. A lot, a lot of people struggle with that. They can hardly make it out of a store without trying to steal something. The scripture says in Ephesians 4, 28, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Notice that he should work not just to feed himself and to take care of himself, but so he can learn the joy of giving. 
Let him work to take care of himself, but also so he learns how to share, how to give. We're blessed to be a blessing to others, not just ourselves. Freely we have received, freely we are to give. Paul in his exhortation to the elders of Ephesus said in Acts chapter 20, 35, quoting Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Be a giver of your money, your time, your energy, your heart. Freely we have received, freely we must give. So husbands, give yourself to loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Jesus laid down his life for the church. We can give our hearts to our wife. Listen to them. Love them. Learn how to love them better. Don't steal your heart from her. Give yourself to discipling and loving your children. Give yourself to the people that you coach, that you mentor, that you pray for, that you meet with, that you love, that you disciple. God has put key people in your life and has asked you to love them. And you shall not steal, says your creator and redeemer. And you steal from them when you don't love them. Because the ultimate way to love is to give. Your time, your talent, your treasure, your heart, everything. Don't rob people of their possessions. And don't rob the people that God has asked you the most to love of yourself, of your time, of your energy, your attention. Maybe you've never stolen anything from a store. But have you stolen your own self from the people that God wants you to love the most? Do you keep yourself to yourself instead of giving yourself to them? Remember at the beginning I told you 91% of evangelicals surveyed said they never break the eighth commandment. I hope you see now we break this every day. Just as Jesus died for the sins of the rich regional tax collector and professional thief Zacchaeus. So he died for all of his people's violations of the eighth commandment too. Jesus never robbed anyone of anything. And we ought to give of our money. We ought to give of our gifts. We ought to give of ourselves. God gives and blesses us in order that we might give and be a blessing to others. And the greatest portrait of love God shows us is the giving of his eternally beloved son. Jesus' love is shown in the giving of his life to pay the penalty for our sins of the cross. And perhaps the greatest way the eighth commandment is violated is when we withhold our time, our talents, our treasure, and our presence from the people God has asked us to love. Do we steal from them? God the Father loved his bride. Those sinful people that he chose before the foundation of the world to love and redeem And we are told directly in scripture to be imitators of God. Ephesians 5.1 Therefore be imitators of God, dear children. I want to encourage all of us, apply that to everything that you own. Your time, talent, treasure, your money, your presence, your efforts, your attention, your affection. Be imitators of God. And walk in love, that self-giving agape love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Well, we don't give our lives as a sweet-smelling aroma to redeem anybody, but we give our lives to the people that God asks us to love. Don't rob them. If we're thankful to Jesus for giving himself to redeem us, we must give ourselves to others as well. So I would say to myself, to all of you, don't rob God, don't rob one another of money or of yourself or your presence or your love. Let's pray.
Gracious Lord and God, we thank you that Christ bore our debt that we owe to you for our violations of the Eighth Commandment. Help us understand we have the right to private property. The gifts that you've given us, they really are ours. But we don't have ultimate ownership of them. We are only stewards of them. So help us to cast those gifts out, to to invest them upon many waters, to love strongly the people you've asked us most to love, and to not rob them of anything that you've entrusted us with. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.